So we're going to take a little break from the Ephesians study uh, today. Uh, Scott's going to continue with that starting next week. And so today you get the sub, uh, and we're going to go back to the beginning, uh, go back to Genesis chapter 1, and look at some things there. So let's, let's read what God says in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. It says, Now let us conceive a new creation, humanity, made in our image, fashioned according to our likeness, and let us grant them authority over all the earth, the fish in the sea, and the birds in the sky, the domesticated animals, and the small creeping creatures on the earth. So God did just that. He created humanity in his image, created the male and female. Then God blessed them and gave them this directive, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth. I make you trustees of my estate. So care for my creation and rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that roams across the earth. So what we're going to focus on today is, is, uh-oh, there it is, okay, that phrase right there tells us that we are made in God's image. God says that we're going to make humanity in our image, fashioned according to our likeness. Um, now, I was going to start this um, by putting some pictures up there of me at certain ages and my dad at certain ages, because I've always been told how much I'm a spitting image. But since I couldn't find any of those pictures, I brought my dad with me today, <laughs> although the ages aren't, aren't matching up. But when somebody tells you you, you resemble somebody... Um, depending on who the person is, that can be a compliment or not. But if it's somebody that you admire, like when people tell me that I look like my dad, I think of all the things I love about my dad. It, it very quickly stops becoming about the appearance and starts making me think about, man, I hope I'm like him in that way. You know, I hope I resemble him in more than just the appearance. Um, so when God tells us uh, that he made us in his image, what are we talking about? It's something that's at the very core of who we are. It's at the core of our identity. Um, but do we really understand what that really means? Um, Stanley Grins is a theologian, wrote this book called Theology for the Community of God. And in that book, he says, Indeed, no assertion moves us closer to the heart of our human identity and our essential nature than does the declaration we are created in the divine image. Nothing is more core to who you were created to be and to who you are and in your very essence, nothing is more core than that phrase, created in God's image. But what does it mean? So you can look throughout the theological world and you can find all kinds of different, uh, different theories about what it means. If you ask your Mormon friends what it means to be created in God's image, they'll probably talk to you about something related to, to having a physical body. Because within their theological system, God has a body. He's just much, 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 much bigger, <laughs> right? So that's a, an answer that they might give. If you, if you read some of the early medieval church leaders within Christianity, um, a lot of times they associate it with our intelligence. We're created in God's image means that we have a level of intelligence um, that resembles God in some ways. Uh, I find it ironic that intelligent, educated men concluded that what it means to be created in God's image is to have intelligence. 
It's kind of a circular reasoning there. The, the problem there is obvious. What does this mean for people that aren't as privileged, don't have the same level of education, don't have the same access to, to knowledge that other people have? Are they somehow less bearing, do they bear God's image in a lesser way? Uh, so that's problematic. You get to the Protestant Reformation and you read uh, some, some writers who will talk about being created in God's image in more relational terms. And that's a fine word. It's just the way they applied it to this question um, was probably not the best understanding. Basically, their understanding said that God's image in you is your righteousness. Um, so that's, why, that's what Adam and Eve had before sin entered the world. Before the fall, they had righteousness. So they were in God's image in that case. And then they mostly lost all of that image of God when they sinned. Um, so for the reformers, the image of God, uh, bearing the image of God was more like holding up a mirror than it was holding up a picture. So think about this analogy. If you hold up a picture, it, it reflects that image. It shows you an image no matter where you're standing. It shows the same thing no matter where you are in relation to that picture. It's a, it's, a, it's a static image, right? If you hold up a mirror, its ability to reflect that image depends on how well you are aligned to the mirror, okay? So for a lot of the Protestant reformers, reflecting the image of God was more like a mirror because it depended on how, how well aligned you were with God. So when we, as soon as you walk away from God, as soon as you sin, you stop reflecting his image, at least for the most part. Now, they recognize that there was a problem with this because they know that there's, there's passages in the Bible that, uh, that refer to all people at all times reflecting God's image in spite of their sin, okay? Verses like these, and this is just a couple of examples. Genesis 9 uh, says, whoever sheds the blood of a human, that person's blood will be shed and returned by another. For God made humanity in his own image. And then James chapter three uh, says, this same tongue can be both an instrument of blessings to our Lord and Father and a weapon that hurls curses upon others who are created in God's own image. So this is after sin enters into the world, after everybody's subject to sin and to the destruction that comes from sin, and people are still referred to as being created in God's image. So what do you do with that? Well, what the reformers did is they had to admit that there was at least something left of God in us, at least something left of the image of God. But they would explain it in interesting ways. Calvin in Institutes of Christian Religion, his seminal work, you know, if you go to any, any theological school, this is one of the first things you're going to learn about is, is this, because it was so important in the history of, of Christianity. But one thing he said in this is, there's no doubt that Adam when he fell from his state, so when sin entered the world, okay, there's no doubt that Adam was, by his defection, alienated from God. Therefore, even though we grant that God's image wasn't totally annihilated and destroyed in him, yet it was so corrupted that whatever remains is, a fri is frightful deformity. Okay, and then he goes on later, he says, now God's image is the perfect excellence of human nature which shone in Adam before his defection or his fall, his sin, but was subsequently so vitiated and almost blotted out that nothing remains after the ruin except what's confused, mutilated, and disease-ridden. I love those reformers. They, they, <laughs> they don't mince any words at all. Basically, if you had trouble following that, basically what he's saying is... 
there's only a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of God's image left in us once sin entered the world. And even that tiny, tiny, tiny bit of image of God that's left in us is frightfully deformed. Okay? So that's kind of the basic message that a lot of the reformers would, uh, would teach. So for them, human identity, who you are in your essence, begins with your ugliness, begins with your sin, your identity as a sinner, as a rebel, as someone who's totally depraved and, worth, uh, and virtually worthless. Okay? My critique of that is that that treats the Bible as if the story begins with Genesis 3 and skips chapters 1 and 2, where everything was created good. In its essence, in its created being, God pronounced his creation good. The story doesn't begin with sin and brokenness and decay. So I could go on with that critique, but that's kind of my critique of that, of that interpretation. So that's the Protestant reformers. You get to, to kind of more modern liberal theologians, and the, the pendulum kind of swings the opposite, the, the opposite direction. So the reformers were, the image of God in us is basically completely gone. We're all bad. We're all, we're all terrible. The modern liberal theologians kind of swing the pendulum the opposite way, and they say we're all glorious, wonderful image bearers, bearers of God, period. There's nothing else to say about it. And that's also an off-balance way of looking at it. So there's a lot of different ways to, to think of this. And, and what I'm going to uh, kind of say in the rest of our time today isn't going to capture the full breadth of what it means to be an image bearer of God. But I want to give you a few things to think about that I think we can see pretty directly from, from the text that we're looking at. Um, so being made in God's image, first of all, involves the idea of reproducing or uh, creation. Now, before I say anything else, let me be really clear. When we're talking about um, being fruitful and multiplying, actually, let's see. So this is the phrase that it's based on there in Genesis chapter 1. Very first directive, the very first commandment God gives is be fruitful and multiply. And that command, I want to be clear, that does not imply that people who are single or people who do not have children or cannot have children are somehow lesser image bearers of God. It does not devalue people in that state. And let me tell you why I say that. First of all, the Bible says Adam was made in God's image before Eve was ever there. So he was, it was physically impossible for him to reproduce, for him to have children, when he was pronounced to be made in God's image. Okay? So it can't be that it's the ability to have children or the, the act of having of children that makes someone created in God's image. So there's that. Secondly, the New Testament sheds some, in, some, some additional light on it. Okay, 1 Corinthians 7, um, singleness is encouraged. Okay, Paul has some interesting things to say. He, said, he basically tells, tells the people that he's writing to in 1 Corinthians 7, be single because you have a lot more opportunities that way. You can accomplish a whole lot more as a single person. So singleness is actually elevated and encouraged. And there's a great summary line in verses 8 and 9 there in 1 Corinthians 7 where he basically says, uh, if, if you want to get married, it's not a sin. <laughs> uh, I love the way he, he kind of summarizes, summarizes that. So singleness is encouraged. So being single, being, being uh, childless, all of that does not affect somebody's, uh, somebody's status as an image bearer of God. Okay? So having said that, it is part of the story here, right? Be fruitful and multiply. Replenish the earth. Have children, okay? So that call to reproduce reminds us of something even bigger, 
which is the, the fact that as humans, we were created in a way that makes us uniquely, um, radically created, uh, creative. We have a creativity unlike anything else in creation. Okay, God gives us the power to be creators or destroyers in this world. So you, you see, as you see the scriptures play out, you see the Tower of Babel, people taking great skill to be creative and build something that's not in line with what God's calling them to be. You see, you see great artisans creating works that were probably very beautiful, but they're idols to a pagan god. So you see people using their creative impulse, the, the creativity that God placed within them that's a reflection of God's image. You see them using that in ways that are destructive, but then you also see these same artisans, these same creatives um, throughout, the, throughout Scripture writing songs. The, the, the book of Psalms, the probably most beloved portion of Scripture throughout the world by believers and non-believers alike, is art. It's creative Okay, you've got artisans fashioning uh, and, and outfitting the temple and the tabernacle for worship to God. So, so crea creative, creativity becomes a battleground in Scripture for our humanity. The essence of our humanity is to co-create with God a world that glorifies him. He gives us the power and he gives us the ability to do that. And it's all summarized by the fact that as image bearers of God, we can create other image bearers of God. Okay? So, reproduce or create. Second thing, being made in God's image means that we are rulers. God has given us the ability to rule in some ways alongside him, with him being supreme over all. In our passage here, in the charge that he gives us, he says that we will rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that roams across the earth. Now, the word rule might kind of rub you the wrong way a little bit. Um, it's kind of a strong word, especially in the way that we use terms conversationally here. It sounds a little bit crazy. You know, when you think of the word rule, you're thinking uh, somebody serving somebody else, and the, the ruler kind of has carte blanche to do whatever he wants, right? Pillage, steal, kill, do whatever he wants, Right? Well, let me caution you against that because that's a pagan notion of rulership that we've kind of superimposed upon the text. When the, when the Bible tells us that we are to rule over creation, it's not saying we get to do whatever we want and it's all okay because we were put in charge. That's not the message of Scripture. Because to rule over biblically, that, that idea of rulership means to admit that you influence creation in a way that no other species does. And so no other species has the ability to bring the best out of creation and no other species has the ability to bring the worst out of creation the way we do as humans. So true rulership, especially when you look at how Jesus models it and the way Jesus defines it, true rulership is the capacity to serve the things that you have influence over. So we're stewards. God left us in charge to bring the best out of this world that he placed us in. Okay, so being created in, in the image of God means that we have a rulership. Thirdly, we show, one, we show God to one another. We reveal just being called the image of God, being made in God's image. Just that terminology itself is revelatory. It's a revelatory concept. To see an image of something is to see something that is revealed, that is shown to you. 
So the very language that's used there talks about revelation, being, being revealed. So what I mean by that is we show each other, when we see each other, we show each other something about what God is like. Okay? We're revealing God to each other all the time. And, and, and think about that. That's, that's a privilege. To, to think about the fact that we are created in God's image means that when I have an encounter with you or when I have an encounter with any other human, there is the ability to see the spark of God within them. There is an encounter with that person that, that, that positions us to encounter God in the way that, that, that encountering anything else in creation does not do. Okay, wherever you go in nature to see God, encountering a human is one step closer. The Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows his handiwork. So creation declares God's glory. We can see something about how big God is and how wonderful God is and how powerful God is by being in the mountains like Josh talked about or by walking through the woods or seeing a sunset. You can see wonderful things about God, but the Bible never says that creation is the image of God. What the Bible says is the image of God is our fellow humans, our fellow men and women that we encounter on a daily basis. So there's a, there's, a, there's a line of thinking that's, that's becoming uh, more, more common than, than what most of us grew up with. You hear about the, un, the, the de-churched, I think a lot of times is what they, what they call them. People that they grew up in church or something, but now they feel like they encounter God in a, more, in a more perfect way by themselves. They don't need church. They don't need to be in a, part of, a part of a community with other people because they can get close to God in nature. Okay? I'm not denying that you can get close to God in nature. I do it myself. But if you want to get even closer, hang out with people. Because we, we can't lose sight of the fact that when another human being walks into the room, we are immediately seeing a greater revelation of God. Now, that's hard to grasp. Especially when people are, being, are doing what people do being hypocritical, lying, cheating, stealing, doing all the things that sin has kind of conditioned us to do, even the most well-intentioned of us, are imperfect. And if you catch me at one of my less perfect moments, of all of my imperfect moments, you're probably going to have to struggle a little bit to see how I'm reflecting God in that moment. But when we, encounter, when, we, when we go into all of our relationships and when we go into all of our encounters with people expecting to see something of God in them, then it opens our eyes up to a whole new possibility. It doesn't mean that everything that I do and everything that the people you encounter do is a reflection of God. It just means that everybody has a spark of divinity within them. Everybody has the image of God within them. And when we dig deeper and when we relate to people and when we go through life together and when we challenge each other and when we, when, we, when we go through all of the things that we're trying so hard to do as a church in community with one another, when we do those things, we can encounter God in ways that we will never be able to encounter God walking through the woods and looking at sunsets. Because humans bear the image of God. Okay? And then the next one, we're inherently relational, and that makes us bearers of God's image. Um, when God talks about making us in his image, his grammar shifts, okay? He goes back, he goes to using plural. So God doesn't say, I'm going to make God in my image. God says, let us, plural, make man in our plural image. 
Now, there's a, there's a whole lot of theology that can go into this, but basically this is part of one, one of the major reasons why Trinitarian theology developed. The idea that God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there's three, but they're one God. The mystery of the Trinity, is kind of, a lot of it is wrapped up in this kind of language. But the message behind this language is that even in God's essence, God is relational. There is an internal relatability to God that he, that he brings forth in us when he created humans, okay? So we're made in the image of God means that just as he's relational, so are we, okay? Now, when you go to the next chapter of Genesis chapter 2, um, God's kind of backing up and he's, he's telling how he, the, the, the chapter is telling how God made Adam first, and it says in, in chapter 2, verse 18, it's not good for the man to be alone, so I'll create a companion for him, a perfectly suited partner. So, so think about what's happening here. God made Adam. He's, he's, made, he's made everything in the world. Sin hasn't entered the world yet. Everything is just as God intended it to be. And he's pronounced everything good through this whole process. It's good, it's good, it's good, as, as he creates it. Then he creates Adam, and for the first time, he says, it's not good. Okay, he looks at Adam, he says, it's not good. There's no sin yet. There's no corruption. Satan hasn't entered the picture. Everything that exists is a product of God's handiwork, yet he looks down on the earth and, and over everything that he's created at this point and says, ah, that part's not good. All right? What's not good there? There's no sin to, to contaminate things. The thing that's not good about Adam is that there's no Eve. That's the thing. A person outside of relationship isn't right. And it doesn't have to be a husband-wife relationship. It's a person that, does, that, that lives in isolation is not living into their, first, in, in, into their full self. They're not living into the, the essence of what God created them to be. You were made to be relational. You can't help it. That's what God made you to be. Now, that doesn't mean we all do relationships the same way. Right? You got some people that are extroverts, some people that are introverts. You got a whole spectrum of different ways of processing relationships and engaging in relationships. But we're all relational. You think relationally. You self-talk. You process things relationally. When you dream, you make up other characters to be a part of that dream with you. Your subconscious is relational. And if you're isolated from other people for long enough, what's going to happen? You're going to make up something to have relationship with just so you don't go crazy. Kids, if you don't know what that is, talk to your parents and, and rent a movie. It's a good one. But seriously, if you're isolated from others for long enough, you'll start acting crazy in order to keep your sanity. Why? Because you're wired for relationship. That's how God made you. It's part of bearing God's image. So, what does all this mean? A few things to say. So first, since we're all infinitely valuable, we should love others as we love ourselves. We're all created in God's image. God created mankind, humankind, in his image. How valuable is the Mona Lisa? According to the infallible source Wikipedia, it's worth about $830 million you're more valuable than that. But take it a step further. 
How valuable was Mona Lisa to her mother? There's infinite value. That's a completely different question. You're talking about infinite value there. You are God's image bearer. You are God's creation. The value that you carry is far beyond anything that could be quantified. And so is the person that stole your parking space. So is the person that hurt you when you were a kid. So is the person that's bullying you at school. We all bear God's image in some way. And so since we're all infinitely valuable because of that spark of divinity within us, we should love others as we love ourselves. Secondly, since we were made to take care of creation, we're not living as fully human when we pollute rather than protect. It's part of being made in the image of God that we are to be for the protectors of the world that we live in. Creation was created unfinished, waiting for us to bring the best out of it. And there's times in history when humans have done a good job of this and we bring medications into the world that save lives and we, and we learn ways of cultivating the field so that to, to this day we're able to feed more people using less land than ever in the history of the world. So there's ways that we've taken care of the planet in ways that are helpful and, 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 and live into this identity that God has given us. But then there's other ways that we're destroying it. You know, you can read in the news about all the plastic that's floating around the oceans and killing wildlife. You can, whatever you think of global warming and the policies that should surround it, there's, there's a pretty, there's a growing consensus that we have something to do with it at least and we need to take it seriously. There's a world that God gave us to care for and as image bearers of God, we have the responsibility to protect it rather than pollute it. It's how God's designed us to be and it's, it's who we are in our essence. Next, since we're designed for relationship, we'll grow best within honest, loving community. Since we're designed for relationship, we're going to grow best within honest, loving community. Um, a Swiss theologian by the name of Emil Bruner, I liked what he had to say. He said, we cannot be human by ourselves, not the brilliance not the brilliance of one's intellectual endeavors, but loving others constitutes genuine humanity. Being in relationship with other people that we're able to love and relate to is what constitutes genuine humanity. It's no different from what scripture tells us. 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. You can take the course, you can read all the books, you can become an expert in what it means to, to love and, and what God uh, says about love. You can know all of these facts, but if you don't work it out in loving relationships, you don't really know a thing about it. We're designed to live in a community where we can actually work it out, challenge one another, knock off each other's rough edges as much as possible, and then grow together. We're designed to live in a community where we can say, we want to form around this teaching, the teaching of Christ. We want to form ourselves around that, that body of teaching so that we can become more loving people and then go out into the world and spread it around like salt. And so we come into community to become students of love. You can't learn how to love if you're not doing it with the people that are to be the objects of your love. 
So when we do that, we realize that relationship is really what it's all about. Relationship with God and relationship with one another. So when we start to ask the question, who am I? In the core of my being, in, the, in my essence, who am I? Another analogy for you. You're more like an onion than you are like a peach, all right? Go with me here. So a peach identity, if you're, if you're, if you're living out a peach identity, that means that you're going to dig down, you're going to get rid of all the other relationships, all these extraneous things, and I by myself am going to find the essence, the pit of who I am. I'm going to get down to that core by just getting rid of all the other stuff on the outside. But I think more biblically speaking, we need to think of our identity more like the way an onion is put together. We're the sum total of our relationships, starting first and foremost with our relationship with God. But then as we peel off this relationship and that relationship, we realize that we just keep going until there's nothing left. Because we're the sum total of the relationships that we are involved in. We're the sum total of the avenues by which we can extend love to others. And you can't do that outside of relationships. So we're built for relationship. And then since Jesus is God's perfect image in human form, we'll get to know our true selves better as we get to know Jesus better. Okay? Jesus' role in this whole, this whole lesson, this whole message, is that Jesus gets to show us what God's like, and Jesus gets to show us what perfect humanity looks like. So when we need a model to follow... When we, when we need to, to wonder, how, how am I living into the image of God, identity that I have? How, how, how can I live into that more fully? When we're confused about that, we have a model to look to that shows us not only what our life is supposed to look like, but also shows us, in a, in a real way, the one that we're directing our lives towards, God. So Jesus becomes our mentor in helping us get to know both God and ourselves. Okay, so one thing uh, to, to kind of take with you, just an idea, you don't have to do this, obviously, but it's just a thought. I've, I've become a, more of a believer through the years that um, head knowledge is one thing, but it helps you to live things out the more you involve the rest of yourself in the things that you're learning. So some of the rituals that we go through involve our body, whether it's standing and sitting, kneeling to pray, involve our body in, in things. Sometimes, sometimes there's candles that are lit and there's smells that go along with that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer you a way to involve your body and your sense of touch in processing this lesson. Get a coin. If you keep your coins in your right pocket, take one that you put in your left pocket. Or find a coin and put it in a, in a place that's going to be conspicuous to you, that you're not used to finding a coin. And carry that coin around and let that coin remind you of who you're designed to be. And why, why a coin? Why am I doing this? It comes from the story of Jesus in Luke chapter 20 that'll be familiar to you. Some people come to Jesus and they ask Jesus the question, um, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Is this, is this something we're supposed to do? Of course, they're trying to trap him. So Jesus is in a little bit of a dilemma because if Jesus says, yes, you should pay your taxes, then they can come back at him and they say, well, Jesus, you preach peace and nonviolence and you preach loving your enemies, uh, but paying taxes to Caesar funds oppression and war and all of that. So you're, you're being a hypocrite. But if Jesus says, no, don't pay your taxes, then they can say, oh, well, you're a traitor. So we can get rid of you that way. 
So Jesus is in a little bit of a dilemma there, but what he does is he, say, he does say, go on and pay your taxes, but he says that as a way to launch into a teaching of a much more important truth that connects to what we're talking about here. He says, pay your taxes, and then he says, show me a coin, and they pull out one of these, a denarius. It would look something like that. And they show him a denarius, and he says, whose image is, is on that? And whose name is on that? And of course, they say Caesar's. And Jesus says... We'll give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's, right? If you've grown up in church, this isn't an unfamiliar passage to you. You've probably heard it before. But sometimes the things that we're familiar with, because we've heard them so many times, we, we kind of rush through them without thinking about what's involved in the things that are said. So when Jesus says that sentence, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's, um, there's, there's a depth there. That only makes sense if Jesus fully understood what it means for humans to be made in the image of God. He says, Caesar's image is on this coin. So it's his, give it to him. His name's on it, give it, it's his, whatever. But his point is, what bears God's image? You do. What wears God's name? You do. So give to God what is God's. Your life your, your, your hours, your minutes, your days. Give those things to God because that's what God's imprint is on. You bear God's image and because you bear God's image, you belong to him. And you can cast your cares on him and you can, you can rely on him for guidance. And my thought is that by keeping a coin in your pocket, perhaps it'll remind you of this denarius. Keep, your, keep a coin in a, in a conspicuous place where you'll, you'll be, there will be a split second of, oh, what's that? Oh, yeah, I'm created in God's image. God's image is stamped on me, so I give my life to God fully and completely. So that's one idea. And band, y'all can come up, and, and those who are serving communion, if y'all will go on and get ready. So that's one way to involve your body in processing this message. But God not only gave us that. He not, he not only gave us the teaching that we're, uh, the, that we're created in God's image, he also gave us Jesus to show us what God's image, how that is lived out in life. And he gave us these rituals that we go through on a daily basis or on a weekly basis that help us to understand uh, even more fully. He gives us something like communion, what we're about to do taking the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, how whatever word you use to refer to it, what God gives us in this moment is the ability to say, you, not only do you bear my image, but I'm constantly feeding into you my presence. Not only do you wear the name of Jesus, but you're constantly able to receive Christ from me. I always prefer the language of coming to receive communion rather than taking communion because we're not taking something that's not, that we're not entitled to. We're not taking something that's not been offered to us freely and fully. We're taking something and we're, we're receiving something that's a gift. We're receiving something from God by, by engaging in communion that reminds us that we're created in God's image and we're designed for his glory. So as we sing this next song, you're going to have gluten-free here in the middle, and then you'll have uh, glutinous to the, to the sides. But think about how receiving Christ into yourself is going to enable you to live into your identity as an image bearer of God.